Good morning, Community Church. Good morning, Alma, and good morning for those of you online. Just a little bit of a, a statement ahead of this. The next two weeks really fit together. So if you can't be here next week, make sure that you watch it or listen to it because uh, these are a coupled group as we come to the end of our series called The Last Page. I used to do something as a kid that some people would call questionable. Now, you know, that's not my personality. But I would take parchment paper, and a friend of mine and I would go out to graveyards, and we would put the parchment over some very interesting graves, and we would use the pencil. Some of you have done that, maybe not with grave sites, but uh, I thought they were very interesting. There's one in Indiana. Now, I haven't gone and done it, okay? It's 100 years old. And here's what the inscription on the tombstone says. Pause, stranger, when you pass me by, as you are now, so once was I. As I am now, so you will be, so prepare for death and follow me. That's awful. <laughs> well, somebody else thought it was too. And in indelible ink, they wrote the following on the gravestone. To follow you, I'm not content until I know which way you went. <laughs> and that's what we're talking about. The last page, we're actually at the last page of the last page. You've heard some phenomenal messages the past few weeks as Pastor Allen has kind of set us up for today and next week. We're dealing with two doctrines that deal with death. Doctrine of hell this week, doctrine of heaven next week. Now, if you're a first-timer, we don't preach on this very often, okay? Nobody does. But we feel that it is absolutely necessary that you and I grasp what the Bible says about our destiny. We live in a world of right and wrong. The problem is who decides what's right and wrong? The society, the politicians, the entertainers, the media, your friends, your professors, you know, none of them make the ultimate decision on right or wrong. The only place that that can be found in its absolute form is in the Word of God. It's the scriptures that teach us what's right and what's wrong. So every decision you and I make is either a right decision or a wrong decision. There's no middle bucket. There's, well, I almost, no, you either do it right or you do it wrong. We need to understand that those decisions then impact us in our relationships with each other horizontally, and they impact our relationship with God vertically. So every time I make a decision, it touches more people than just me. And it affects how my God interacts with me, my relationship. Why is it? Well, it started in the Garden of Eden after God had created all things. 
And he created them for his own glory. And he created man and woman after his own image. He had them in this garden. And it was a paradise. We'll talk about that next week. And he said, I just want you to be fruitful, multiply, subdue the earth, have dominion over it. Just enjoy what I have given you in my presence. But there's one prohibition. I don't want you to eat from the tree that's in the midst of the garden that is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. You know the story, perhaps, that they disobeyed God. And Eve, in her actions, listened to Satan through the snake, and Adam, in his lack of action, stopped her from listening. He did not stop her from listening. And then she takes the fruit, and he accepts it from her. So both, either by commission or omission, by passive or active disobedience, they break a relationship with God. So now they no longer have this relationship with God because God had said, if you eat, surely you will die. Well, some people said, well, look, they didn't die immediately. No, that's not what God was talking about. What God was saying to them was, I breathe into you the breath of life. It's in your soul, your spirit. But because you have disobeyed me, your decision not to follow me creates spiritual death in you. We now no longer are spiritually attracted to one another. That's what God was saying to Adam and Eve. And in like manner, Adam and Eve were no longer attracted to each other in the same way they had been before they sinned. So now we've created this huge mess. And when you and I are born, we're born as a product of that mess. So that I am born with a spirit that is dead. A spirit that's not in relationship to God. A spirit that wants to be deep in my heart, but does everything possible to keep it from happening. Because that's the nature and the power of the sin nature within us. But here's the good news, and you know it. Christ came. And through his sacrifice, through his resurrection, through his ascension... You and I received that breath of life back and our spirits became alive. And when we heard the gospel of Jesus Christ and what he had done for us, we came running to him and he accepted us. But what about those who don't? Is there life after death? Well, so many people say, yes, there is. But unfortunately, the definitions conflict with one another and what the media has done to us has helped us to dissolve hell into just a word that we use in phrases without understanding the content of the meaning of that word in 1740 1741 there was an event that happened over this two-year period in Massachusetts, a little town called Northampton. We in America have given it the title, The Great Awakening. And it was a time when one of the greatest preachers in history, Jonathan Edwards, began preaching a series of messages on hell. And over 300 people in that little town came to Christ during that two-year period, and the entire town changed as a result of this. His most 
important and well-read message of that, imperi- of that entire time was given on July the 8th, 1741, and it was entitled, <clears throat> Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. I mean, would that attract you to come to church? <laughs> Not at all. I'm going to give you about a 30-second read from that message, and I want you to feel with me the tension that this pastor is establishing, the fear that he's putting into people, rightly so. Listen to what he says. O sinner, consider the fearful danger you are in. It is a great furnace of wrath, a wide and bottomless pit full of the fire of wrath, that you are held over in the hand of that God whose wrath is provoked and incensed as much against you as against many of the damned in hell. You hang by a slender thread with the flames of divine wrath flashing about and ready every moment to singe it and burn it asunder. You have no interest in any mediator and nothing to lay hold of to save yourself. Nothing to keep off the flames of wrath, nothing of your own, nothing you can ever done, nothing that you can do to induce God to spare you one moment. That is the doctrine of hell. I have three quotes I'm going to use today from the great writer C.S. Lewis, who became a Christian later in life. You may be aware of some of his works. From his work called The Problem of Pain, he says this, There's no doctrine which I would more willing remove from Christianity than this, the doctrine of hell. If it lay in my power, but it has full support of Scripture and especially of our Lord's own words. In the Gospels, hell appears actually as a word in a sentence 12 times and 11 of those come from the mouth of Christ. Many more times it's expressed Matthew 10, 28, Jesus says, Do not be afraid of those who kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather, be afraid of the one who can destroy both soul and body in hell. That's Jesus. Now let me add a little more drama to this. We live in a world of symbols, don't we? Icons. Everywhere you look, there's something that represents something. One of the largest, of course, is the icon of the apple. And when you see the icon, it is not the tool that you're using. It simply represents the tool, right? You have an iPhone, you have an iPad, you have a a computer, and they all have the little apple on there. So when you see the apple, you think computers, phones. Because the reality is always greater than the symbol that's showing it. That's important to remember. All the things said in Scripture concerning the doctrine of hell are far less than the reality of what it is. These symbols, one theologian said, when Jesus spoke of hell, he was speaking in symbols and images that represent a reality, but the reality always exceeds in its substance what the symbol contains. Now, if the images of the New Testament view of hell are but images, then that would mean that the reality is much, much worse 
than the literal symbols we've been given. Just let your mind absorb that for a moment. And then look at these words that Jesus uses in the scriptures to describe this literal place called hell. Unquenchable fire. Utter darkness. Eternal torment. The worm doesn't die. Gnashing of teeth. Anguish and regret. Place of no return. Weeping. Wailing. Flames. Burning. Torments. I can't imagine hell and all of these descriptions as words that describe something that is far worse than we now define these words. But it is. But here's the worst part of the worst. They're all eternal. Hell has no ending. Hell is forever. Matthew 25, 46. Then they will go away to eternal punishment but the righteous to eternal life. Notice Jesus uses the same word for both, both meaning the same thing, eternal, never ending, forever. Hell does not stop existing. People in there do not stop existing. It's a place that none of us wants to go. But unfortunately, hell is our default. If you do nothing with Jesus during your lifetime, then hell is your destiny. It's the fate that awaits all people who choose to be apart from God. It's not just that God weighs good and bad and sends the bad. No. God waits for you to come to his son Jesus Christ whom he has presented to us. And if you do not do anything with that, then your default is hell. But there's good news available. It's the news that Christ's death and resurrection have intervened for you and for me. So when we think of hell, don't think of it apart from Jesus Christ who has delivered you from hell. So where are you today? Where are you in your relationship with Christ? Second quote from C.S. Lewis. The safest road to hell is the gradual one, the gentle slope, soft underfoot, without sudden turnings, without milestones, without signposts. In other words, just very slowly you boil and you find yourself there and you realize that's where you belong because you made your choice. There's a group called the Barna Group founded by George Barna years ago that keeps track of Christianity and America, and it keeps track of how unbelievers and believers think. Well, they found that the majority of Americans still believe in life after death. They just can't agree on what that means. One said, I think of the way hell is depicted today in television, in movies, in conversations, with friends, in gaming, they all have a highly subjective view of hell. Their afterlife concept is disconnected from what the Bible teaches. Just went south for a vacation this past week and went through Georgia. And for those of you who know, something very important to know is that exit 330 and 144 is Bucky's. How many of you know what Bucky's is? 
Oh, you have so missed a part of life. <laughs> Bucky's is like taking three Sam's Clubs and putting them together and adding 100 gas pumps. Seriously. It's the largest thing I've ever seen. And gas is cheap there. We have to define cheap today differently. <laughs> so I'm in there. I've already fueled up and I'm getting a snack and they have something that I love. And do not bring me any, okay? Because you can't make it like my mother did. But they came close. It's banana pudding. You know, doesn't that just sound good right now? So I'm walking out of the store and these two ladies are coming out behind me and I hear one of them say, oh, that was awful. So many people. It was worse than Disneyland. And the other lady says, yes, that's my definition of hell. And I stopped. <laughs> Do I dare explain to her that it couldn't be hell? They're not going to sell banana pudding there. <laughs> but you see, that's how we use that term. And you hear it around you a lot every day somewhere, don't you? And it's the downplay of the reality. Hell is far easier to enter. Just don't change your course. Just don't come to Jesus. You're guaranteed a spot. In his classic work, The Inferno, Dante envisioned a sign above hell's gate that said, abandon every hope, you who enter, because hope is lost. But long before Dante or Michelangelo or great Renaissance painters came up with this idea of what hell would look like, scriptures had already explained it. And placed in it is a lot of fire, that fire that does not consume, because our God is a consuming fire, but he doesn't consume them. He just lets them burn. And you say, well, how could a God of love do that? Because the God of love and the God of justice do not conflict with one another. Our God is a loving God. Otherwise, we would not be saved. But he's given us the choice of coming to him for that salvation. There's a story in the scripture that does the very best job of giving us a glimpse, just a glimpse, of what it will be like for an individual in hell. Jesus is telling a story where he gives a name to one of the characters. Now, some say it's a parable. But others, and I agree with the others, say it's not a parable because in no other parable does Jesus use someone's name. He always says there was a man or there was a person. But here he says something different in Luke chapter 16, verses 19 through 31. Hear the word of God. There was a rich man who was dressed in purple and fine linen and lived in luxury every day. At his gate was laid a beggar named Lazarus, covered with sores and longing to eat what fell from the rich man's table. Even the dogs came and licked his sores. The time came when the beggar died, and the angels carried him to Abraham's side. The rich man also died and was buried. In Hades, where he was in torment, he looked up and saw Abraham far away with Lazarus by his side. So he called to him, Father Abraham, 
have pity on me and send Lazarus to dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue because I'm in agony in this fire. But Abraham replied, son, remember that in your lifetime you received good things while Lazarus received bad things. But now he is comforted here and you are in agony. And besides all this, between us and you, a great chasm has been set in place. So that those who want to go from here to you cannot, nor can anyone cross over from there to us. He answered, then I beg you, Father, send Lazarus to my family, for I have five brothers. Let him warn them, so that they will not also come to this place of torment. Abraham replied, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them listen to them. No, Father Abraham, he said, but if someone from the dead goes to them, they will repent. He said to him, If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be convinced, even if someone rises from the dead. The rich man didn't go to Hades because he was rich. Lazarus didn't go to heaven because he was poor. But we find this rich man who did not live a life in connection with God in a place called Hades. Now, that's not the final resting place. Next week, we'll talk about us and the fact that when we die and go to heaven, that's not the final resting place for us. So Lazarus is over here with Abraham, who is the representative of God, and the rich man is over here in torment, and he's not even yet in hell. But notice some things about that. His death brought torment. He could see Lazarus, which is part of the torment. He could see God and communicate with God, but he couldn't get to him. He couldn't have a relationship with him. He was burning and yet not being consumed. He remembered his brothers, the things that had happened on earth and how he should have repented and he didn't and they're not going to. And he knew that the only opportunity he had, he'd already passed up on. But get this, he's in isolation. It gave me a whole new picture of hell. We often think hell would be a large group of people who have defied God, who are all running around doing chaotic things. I think it's worse than that because this picture shows me it's a place of conscious punishment with no help of relief and no one to talk to about it. He couldn't talk to Lazarus, but could see him. He couldn't talk to his brothers, but he knew they were there. He was in absolute isolation. C.S. Lewis's last quote, the lost enjoy forever the horrible freedom they have demanded. To be free from God, to make my own decisions, to live my own life, to do it my way, Well, that's going to end by your being able to do it exactly as you chose. And you will spend eternity in hell. Someone said hell will be agonizingly dull, small, and insignificant. Without company, purpose, or accomplishment, it will not have its own stories. It will merely be a footnote on history, a crack in the pavement, 
as the new universe moves gloriously onward, hell and its occupants will exist in utter inactivity and insignificance, an eternal non-life of regret. This hell was the hell into which Christ descended. Now, we've just established from Scripture that you're going to be alive in a body in hell. So to be saved from that, someone needed to pay a price in a body while alive in hell. Jesus is arrested. He's placed on the cross. He's beaten. And while he is there, in the middle word of the seven words that he speaks, we remember that cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And it is at that moment that our Christ has moved into a different dimension of reality. Even as he was seen on the Mount of Transfiguration, where he suddenly, all the clouds were removed, and the three disciples saw him, and he was in his glory. So on the cross, no one saw what he did, but he moved into this dimension of hell. And it was that loneliness, that separation from the Father that caused him to cry out, why have you forsaken me? But hell could not hold him because he paid the ultimate price for you and me and he rose from death so that no longer do you and I have to experience spiritual death or physical death again in an ultimate way. Oh, there were some who were raised from the dead during biblical times, but they died again. What we need to understand is the reality of where our sin takes us unless we repent. And the more I thought of this, the more frightened I became to work out my salvation with fear and trembling. That doesn't mean to work to get it. That means that now that I know I have it, I don't want to see any of you miss it because it's an eternity of separation for everybody from everybody. I'm looking forward to that promise of life forever in the presence of God. You cannot believe in the Jesus of the Gospels and not believe in hell. The Bible says it's weeping, it's wailing, it's gnashing of teeth, it's darkness, it's flames, it's burning, it's torments, it's everlasting punishment. So what should it produce in us, this knowledge? If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, then there are a few things that should be produced in you as you think about hell. First of all, the doctrine should produce grief. It should provoke that in you because you can't celebrate the reality of heaven without crying over the reality of hell. It should produce zeal in you to share the gospel. Because if I go out and tell someone and they come to Jesus, then I know that soul is not going to be in in hell. It's going to be in heaven. It should produce thankfulness. 
Not that I did anything to gain what I have been given and do not deserve. But that out of his love, he pulled me out of that mire and he saved me and set me on a course toward him. It should produce celebration that every time I come here to worship, I am worshiping him because of who he is and because of what he's done in my life. And that should then produce prioritization. That I can prioritize my life so as to please him and to help others find their way to him. It's so important. A couple of years ago, I received a phone call while I was in the office here. I answered it, and a young man said, I need to come see you, Pastor. I've never met him, didn't know who he was, and I'm always concerned about, well, who is it that I'm meeting with and why? And I said, well, why do you want to come? He said, I want to get saved. And I said, I'll meet you at the door. You know, and he came, and we talked through his life, and he repented, and he asked God's forgiveness, and he asked Christ into his life. And I rejoice that God trusted me to show him the way that the Bible convicted him of. Do you need Jesus today? It's okay if you do. Because we want you to know how much we love you and how much he loves you. So that when you read that tombstone, pause, stranger, when you pass me by as you are now, so once was I, as I am now, so you shall be, go prepare for death and follow me. Well, we don't know for sure which way he went, but we're so thankful that God sent his son because we know the answer. Final thought. Next week, we're talking about heaven. So here's my request of you. Leave, worship the Lord, and drive carefully. <laughs> Let's pray. Lord, it is with a heavy heart that we present truths from your scripture that make us uncomfortable. But it is your spirit that applies these truths to our lives. So we rejoice in you, Holy Father, for your son and the salvation he has offered us. And Lord, if there are any in here this morning that need that salvation, just pray this prayer. Lord, I ask forgiveness for my sins and ask you to come into my heart and take over my life. I don't know what all that means right now, but I'm willing to get started, Lord. Even if it is out of a fear of hell. So Lord, answer their prayers. Continue to be faithful as you are and watch over us in these days. We pray all of these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Have a blessed day. Be careful going out.